We are in a series through the Gospel of Matthew called the, uh, the King. We're in a section we're calling the King's Ethics. Um, and we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We'll come back to verses 7 through 14 next week as we look exclusively at prayer. But I'll continue with verses 16 through 18 today. So Matthew chapter 6. The Lord says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not know, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by huh, your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Father, I ask that you would use this message to cause us to reflect a more sincere pursuit of you. Lord, I pray that where our hearts need to be shredded and laid open and exposed, you would do that because we know that there is balm and forgiveness and mercy in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, you may grab a seat. So in this text that uh, we just read, Jesus highlights three things that the Pharisees saw as signs of super spirituality. Almsgiving, giving to the poor, or just giving in general as well. Praying and fasting, that was how they flexed and showed just how spiritual they were. Remember the parable Jesus told in Luke 18? He says, two men went up into a temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a sinner, a publican. And you remember what that Pharisee says in that parable? He basically says, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like other men, like this chump over here. And he lists all the things that he's not. And then he says this, I fast twice in the week and I pay tithes of all that I possess. He was trying to flex, right? Do you remember, I think it's uh, in John 12, one of the Marys anoints Jesus with that expensive ointment, that alabaster. And one of the disciples speaks up and says, hey, hey, whoa, 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 slow your roll. We could have sold this ointment. 
I think he says, for 300 denarii and given the proceeds to the poor. And yeah, yeah, it was Judas who said that, but it seemed every one of the disciples affirmed that. Again, a sign of spirituality. Now, when I first set my eyes on this text for the purpose of the sermon a couple weeks ago, two words or two expressions jumped out at me, maybe you as well, that honestly at first blush seemed off, if not outright wrong. Well, the first one is rewards, or righteousness rather, or I would say your righteousness. That's what he says. And that kind of hit me. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. And I thought, good night. I ain't got none. I have no righteousness, right? Doesn't Isaiah 64 and 6 say, all our righteousness is as filthy rags? Does it not say in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one? So what's he getting at when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness because I don't have any? How do you answer that? Well, when you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, have you done that? I don't want to assume everybody here has. Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ? If you did that, and when you did that, the good news of the gospel is that Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death were counted as yours, right? This is called the great exchange. He takes our sin, bam, and what do we get in, the, in place of that? His righteousness. We're credited, we're imputed, is the Bible word, with his righteousness. And that's why it says in Romans 10, 4, as I reminded us a couple weeks ago, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or Romans 4, 5, Christ justifies, declares righteous, the ungodly by faith. So this righteousness that we receive through faith in Christ, you, it can never get any worse. It can never get any better because it's already perfect. We don't practice that righteousness. We receive it by faith. Like the song says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's not what he's talking about here, that righteousness. So what's the connection? It's this. <laughs> this, this new righteous standing in Christ is not to be stagnant, is it? This new righteous standing received by faith, justification, is to produce sanctification, right? Right? In other words, this new righteous standing is to produce a life of new righteous living, of walking out your faith. And I think that's what Jesus is getting here at when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness. You might read it this way. Beware of walking out your faith in this kind of way. Beware of practicing your Christianity in this kind of way. Does that make sense? That's what he says when he says your righteousness. Now, the second thing that caused a little bit of a hiccup for me at first blush was rewards. Seven times in our text, he talks about rewards. And I think, again, at first blush, the idea of practicing my faith for rewards 
I thought that seemed kind of unspiritual. How about you? But nowhere in the Bible does the Bible tell you to be good like the Christmas song says, for goodness sake. He does talk about rewards. We'll unpack that a little bit later. Here's what I want us to walk away with from this text this morning. That we are to practice our righteousness in the right way for the right reward. Y'all with me? We are to walk out our faith to practice our righteousness in the right way for the right reward. Four big movements in this text as we'll look at it this morning. First of all, Jesus makes an assumption. He assumes something of those that would follow him. If you would drop your eyes at verse 2, he did not say, thus, if you give. What does he say? When you give. Verse 5, he doesn't say, and if you pray, he says, when you pray. Verse 16, he does not say, hey, 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 if you fast. What does he say? And when you fast, he assumes that we will what? Do these things. The assumption, I would put it this way, is that true faith has feet. It begins to walk itself out, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For it goes on to say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. That text makes it clear, we are not saved by our works, but by Christ's work. But we are saved, what? For good works. So I would close out this, this first point, real quick one, by asking this question. Does your faith have feet? Since you confess to receive by faith the righteous standing of Christ, the great exchange you believe, he took your sin and, and, you, and you got his righteousness so that you are reconciled back to the one that you basically were born given the middle finger to, right? You now have been adopted into his family. Since that point in time, is it creating a new way of living? He mentions three good works here, giving, right? Praying, fasting, so we're going to look at, but there's many others. Again, I ask you the question, is this assumption true of you? Does your faith have feet? Are you, are you bearing the fruit of good works since you have trusted in Jesus Christ? Point one. Now, the second thing we're going to look at, now we're going to start at the top of the passage. He's going to give us an admonition. What, what do we mean by admonition? When somebody admonishes you, what are they doing? Yeah, it could be. Correction, right? A warning, if you will. The admonition, I would summarize this, is, hey, when you do these things, don't put on a show for crying out loud, okay? Don't, don't do it to impress, to be seen. This is going to be very, very clear. Verse 1, he says, beware. That's a really strong word of admonition, of warning. It could be translated, watch out. Guard yourself from this because you're going to have this tendency. Don't do it. Beware of walking out your faith. Beware of practicing your righteousness, he goes on to say, before other people in order to be seen. Very interesting that the Greek word translated to be seen, theatonao, 
is the word from which we get the word theater. Don't put on theater when you practice your faith. Don't put on a show. And then he begins to knock out specific examples. Verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, don't do-do-do, <laughs> don't sound your trumpet before you. You know, you know, it's just, you know, don't toot your horn, you know. Don't say, oh, if I give this amount, I'll have a brick on the back wall in the foyer that says I'm part of the Golden Club or whatever, the, you know, the Platinum Club. Like, don't, don't seek recognition is what he's saying. It could be, some, some scholars say that in the, in the ancient uh, Jewish uh, temple court system, there was a bucket where they would do offerings, a copper bucket, and sometimes people would come in with their gold coins and throw it in there really hard, make so much noise, people would look, oh, oh, they just gave, look at them, great job. He says, when you do that, you are like the hypocrites in the synagogues, in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word that would describe the, the mask that um, Greek uh, actors and actresses would wear in the ancient theater. You know, mad, sad, glad. You've seen those, those old, old masks. That's what he's saying here. Now, putting on a mask is perfectly appropriate when you're doing stage theater, you want to put on a good show, you want people to really understand you are in that role, and they appropriately give you a, an applause at the end of the show. But it's utterly hypocritical to put on a mask to practice your righteousness, the spiritual disciplines, walking out your faith just to impress others. He says, so don't do that. Verse 5, he says, and when you pray, you must not be, here's the word again, like the mask wearers the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. It seems that um, just like in some communities today in, in various religions, there's, there's a call to prayer, right? It seems there was a call to prayer a few times a day. And people would kind of know when that call to prayer was coming, so they would make sure that when the horn went off, they were on a busy thoroughfare or a packed part of the temple complex so that when people would hear and see them pray, they're like, oh, they are so spiritual. Just listen to them pray. Do you think we're immune to that? I remember that the church that I did an internship at when I was in seminary, Mount Calvary Baptist Church, was a wonderful ministry and had a really powerful men's ministry. One Saturday a month at 7 a.m., from 7 to 9, we had a men's meeting, like 70 to 90, up to 100 guys. And these, these dudes were hardcore. At 8 o'clock, we'd eat an awesome breakfast, get some teaching. But from 7 to 8, as the breakfast team prepared the breakfast, a whole bunch of us would get in a room, probably about this size, hard floor, thin, industrial carpet, and we'd get on our knees, and we would pray for close to an hour. And it was beautiful, but it was very intimidating for me. I couldn't have found fourth Hezekiah in the Bible, right? I knew nothing. And all these guys have been praying their whole life, you know, these what seemed to me eloquent prayers. I think I battled um, not trying to recite my prayer ahead of time so that by the time I prayed, I don't even really think a lot of the time I was communing with God or, inter or interceding. I was just parroting something that I want to parrot. Maybe not to impress, but just so I didn't look stupid, which is another form of trying to impress, right? We're not immune to that. Jesus condemns that. He says, don't do that. You go down to, ver to uh, verse 16, the fasting part. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they twist their faces, disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by 
others. There's a story of a woman who was fasting, and she was really hungry. And she wanted her friend to know that she was fasting. So she just put off all kinds of signals that she was hungry. And her friend, as a friend, said, oh, you seem so hungry. Um, can I make you something? Can I get you some food? Oh, no, she said. I'm not eating. Oh, why not? Are you sick? What's wrong? Since you ask, I'm fasting. Oh, so spiritual. Jesus is condemning that kind of thing right there, right? Now, lost people do these kinds of things, right? Prayers, giving, fasting, thinking that they can earn God's favor and impress others. Think about it. There is no shortage of praise, of adoration even by, by many people, of, for people like, say, Mother Teresa, right? Or Gandhi, because they did those things. Though, by their own lips, never embraced the finished work of Jesus Christ. That stuff doesn't merit anything. And we as believers are not immune from practicing our righteousness in order to curry some level of favor, if not with God, perhaps with others. And this tendency for us can start off so innocently, can it? You might say, I just want to set a good example. Should we want to set a good example? Yes or no? Of course. But how quickly desiring to set a good example can morph into, I hope other people see me setting the good example, right? And we have just fallen prey to this. Now, I end this, this second point with calling uh, our attention to a phrase that is repeated three times. Verses 2 and the other verses in the text that I just read. Verses 2 and 6 and 16. Jesus is very clear. He's quite emphatic. He says, look at, look at this. End of verse 2, for instance. Truly, I say to you, they what? They have received their reward. They've received a reward. And it goes on to say it in the other sections too. What was that reward that they received? What's the reward? The praise. Impressing others. Being seen. So listen, if that's what you want, knock yourself out. Have at it. But note the end of verse 1. If you get... That reward, what does it say about receiving the Father's reward? For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So the question we should ask ourselves as we close this second point, why do I pray? Why do I give? Why do I fast? Why do I do these other things? Am I trying to put on a show Who do I really want to reward from? Now, thankfully, Jesus has something far better to offer us, something far better. Let's hear him now give us, third of all, some instruction. How do then do I pray? How do I fast? How do I give? Now, I want to to put an expression in your mind that will help you not just here, but anytime you're looking at any scripture. There's something called the analogy of faith. Will you say that with me? The analogy of faith. That's a fancy way of saying no scripture exists in isolation from other scriptures, right? Cults love to take scriptures out of place. All of scripture works together, and therefore it does not contradict itself. 
Because sometimes people rigidly look at just these verses and they say very rigid things about prayer, fasting, giving, all of that. I think what Jesus is doing isn't, I'm, I'm confident of this. I know this is what he's not doing. He's not prescribing a particular rigid method and formula for us, okay? He is saying, watch your motivation. Watch your motivation. So what does this say about giving? Well, we'll pick back up in verse 3 now. He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now, he's using something called hyperbole here. Because, well, for a couple reasons. Your left and your right hand actually don't know anything. <laughs> but your brain, who uses them, does. And again, some people take that out of context and say, we sh you should never, you, we sh there should never be, for instance, giving records, right? For, for example. But do you remember Paul? I'll give you many biblical examples. Paul commended some churches as opposed to others for out of their poverty, giving abundantly. So there was some kind of tracking of that. The point he's trying to make is don't, again, give in order to be praised. Don't give to be seen. And I think in that, that illustration of not letting your left hand know your right hand, I think there's also something that I would call a sanctified forgetfulness. Like you're not always thinking, hey, I served this Sunday and I served the next Sunday and I served, you know, or I gave, gave, gave. And I say that on the basis of the great parable, the separating of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. Remember that? And Jesus says, you know, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink and I was naked, you gave me clothing. And they say, well, we never saw you. Where were you? He said, as much as you did it to the least of them among them, you did it to me. In other words, you weren't tracking that, right? He's not prescribing a method of giving. He's saying, watch your motivation. Don't do it to impress. Then you go on to verse 6. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, is Jesus saying here, hey, you should only pray in a, in a prayer closet at your apartment or house or wherever. Is he saying that, do you think? And why do you know he's not saying that? Why do you know that's not his ultimate point? Why do you know that? Because we see examples of public prayer in Scripture that are blessed by God, right? Moses prayed publicly. Ezra prayed publicly. Daniel not only prayed publicly, he did so decisively because the powers that be said, you can't worship the living God. He said, want to bet? And he prayed to God openly to make the point. And even Jesus himself prayed publicly, right? So he's not prescribing a certain method or even a certain posture. There's all kinds of prayer postures in the Bible. He's saying, watch your motivation. Whether you're seen or unseen, act like you're not seen because you're ultimately seeing my father who sees you in secret. And then he talks about fasting. Again, the instruction here, if you drop your eyes down, to verse 17. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who sees in secret. Does this mean then that as you fast, no one else should ever know? Well, yes or no? No, because we see in the Bible there's calls sometimes to corporate fasting. When we call ourselves to fast together, we know that we're fasting. Again, the point is, why are you doing it? To impress others, or is there a higher reason? He's not prescribing the method. He's saying, watch your motivation. Now, 
That brings us to the fourth point. Y'all with me? Y'all with me, really? There's an assumption. There's an admonition. Some instruction. And here's, here's kind of the heavy lifting right here. There's the motivation. So what is the motivation? And there's two of them right here. The first one is God's sight. Call your attention to the latter, ver- latter phrase of verse 4. It repeats itself in verse 6 as well as verse 18. And it goes like this. And when your father who does what? Sees in secret. God sees everything all the time. Hebrews 4.13 says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the one to whom we must give an account. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? I can't. God sees everything all the time with 100% clarity. And that's because he is omnipresent. He's here right now. Not to mention he's omniscient. And and let me just quickly say as an aside, I think the motivation that God sees everything all the time completely and perfectly maybe should scare us a little bit from doing wrong, you think? There's a guy who told a pastor that he just, he was battling looking at pornography. Just couldn't help clicking on the mouse and going to the website and all that. The pastor said to him, would you do that in front of your wife? No. Would you do that in front of your mom? Certainly not. In front of your sister? Nah. A lady shared with him, I'm just having a hard time fighting this gossip thing. Hmm. Would you talk about that person that way when that person was present? No. And yet we do that stuff in the presence of the living God who sees everything all the time perfectly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. But here, as Jesus mentions God's sight, I don't think um, the thrust of it is to remind us of that to scare us from doing what's wrong, though there's a place in Scripture for that. He talks about fear. But here I think he's trying to stir us to do what is right. And in context here, rightly practicing our righteousness specifically of praying, our giving, and our fasting. Not to be seen by others, but the right reason to serve God and to serve others. I think it was last week, Susan was not feeling well. She, she, every once in a while, she gets these terrible migraines. And if you, anybody here get migraines, you know how bad they are. So she went to lay down, and we still, I think the, the um, dishwasher hadn't been um, emptied yet, and there were some dishes out from dinner and all that. And, and by the way, I, I do that. I do my share of that, I think. Okay. All right. But um, I went upstairs to lay down next to her, not feeling well, and end up going to sleep. Had a, or I think that was a Tuesday night, so Wednesday we have an elders meeting at 6 a.m. here to pray for the church as an elder team. I got home. Uh, Emma's off to school with Titus, and, and again, she has that bad migraine, so she's still resting, and the kitchen is all cleaned up. Like, did she go out of bed? How that happened? And, and I texted Emma, hey, Emma, did you do all Oh, yeah, I did that, Dad. She didn't, she didn't, do-do-do-do, you know, she just kept her head down. She wasn't looking for fanfare. And, and I have to say, as a father... That kind of warmed my heart, right? 
She wasn't trying to call attention. She didn't leave a little sticky or a text, hey, Dad, I cleaned up the kitchen for you, which would have been cool in itself, right? And I thought, that's got to be something like the heart of the Father, right? When, when we serve him in prayers and fashion and giving with our head down, not to be seen, not to get accolades from humans, but just because we love the Father, right? But that doesn't mean we actually shouldn't think about rewards because the second motivation, and Jesus mentioned this very clearly, is just seeking the right reward, the reward of God. That's the second motivation, God's rewards. Three times, again, in the same phrase, you can read on, and your father who sees in secret will do what? He will reward you. Again, it may seem really odd to think that God would reward. We should think about his reward when we fast and pray and give and, and other spiritual disciplines. But it's what Jesus is saying, right? Isn't that what he's saying? Your father will reward you. But don't think about that. No, he mentions it every time, doesn't he? In fact, it's all through Scripture. Many times Jesus talks about rewards, and I think we just overlook this. Matthew 10 says, if you receive a righteous person, the day's coming when you're going to receive a righteous person's reward. He said that. In that same text, he says that whoever gives a cup of cold water to a disciple of my name will not lose his or her reward. You go to the parable of the talents, those who use their talents, what happened? They got more. And those who just put them in their back pocket and did nothing with them, what happened? Even what they had was taken away. Even the Beatitudes, in a way, have that element, right? Blessed are those, for they will, dot, 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 here's the blessing, right? It's a lot more common in Scripture than we might know, prompting Sean O'Donnell in his excellent commentary on the Gospel of Matthew to say that Jesus persistently used the motive of God's reward, of God's reward, to help us live for God. So that brings the $1,000 question, which is, what is the reward? Now, I'm going to leave you a bit dissatisfied here. <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure. Okay, so we can just close and pray. No, I think I can give you a little bit. I can give you a little bit. But as you'll see in just a few minutes when I wrap up, if, I think if he told everything that it, we wouldn't be receiving this by faith but by sight. Hold on to that thought, okay? I think some of the rewards are, how about this, power in prayer, right? Like somebody who really knows how to lay hold of the horns of the altar. Power in prayer, answered prayer. I don't think we should shy away from saying that it might be material prosperity. As much as there's the health and wealth abuse of the gospel, there is also God promising that he will bless. And sometimes he's pleased to do that. He's done that with all of us, hasn't he, materially in different ways. It may be emotional blessing, peace, shalom, freedom from anxiety, those kinds of things that people run to all kinds of places to address. He addresses I could go on and on, but I think most of all, in the here and gritty now, I think it would be this, a deeper sense of God's presence in your life. Because James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
I think that's kind of on the temporal side, the here and gritty now and now side, ahead of glory. But I really believe this is ultimately what Jesus is talking about is eternal rewards. Eternal rewards. And I don't think, we probably couldn't understand it. Eye has not seen, right? Nor ear heard the God, nor has entered in the heart of those of heaven, okay? The things that God has prepared for them. Like we can just can't, we don't have a language for this. It's otherworldly, huh? But I do know this, that, that somehow, somehow, our righteousness, the way we walked out our faith is going to be reflected into eternity. This hit me this week, last few weeks as I've been studying this. You remember the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, what a feast that is going to be. And if you're a believer, you're invited to the party. There's this great multitude of voices shouting, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the text goes on to say, and it was granted to her, to the bride of Christ, to clothe herself with fine linen, white and pure. Now, here's the part that checked me. Because when I, you would just read that, read where it says, clothe itself with fine linen, you would think of Christ's righteousness right there, right? But you know what it says right there? It's been granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, white and pure. And it goes on to say what these, this linen is. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's this massive reverberate impact, isn't there? That the things that you do here are going to have an impact out into eternity. They're going to be reflected even in your dress. It's pretty weighty, I think. In fact, I think that's really weighty. We just sang and read about tossing our crowns back at the feet of the living king, right? There's that. The good works. I think it's ultimately about eternity. And I'll give you another reason. Would you just fast forward to verse 19? This next body of teaching we're going to get into into, uh, in two weeks from now after we look at prayer a little bit more. Jesus says... This is the same context here. Do not lay up for yourselves what? Treasures on earth, drop down, verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. I think this ultimately heavenly stuff. Now, you're going to experience a lot of suffering in this life, okay? You get older, there's going to be stuff that's going to happen. We, we know our stories. We know the heartbreak that we can, we can feel. I mean, we just read about something terrible this last week, right? But here's what the Scripture says, believer. When you suffer and you continue to look to the Lord, you're actually laying up more treasure. Because it says in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction. Now, does your affliction in the moment seem light? Yes or no? No. Does it seem momentary? No. But in light of this, he says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Crazy, right? He goes on to say, beyond all comparison, I can't even describe this. As we look then, not to the things that are seen, that's sight, but look at the things that are unseen, that's faith. An eternal weight of glory. Now, I want to do my best to, to, to solve the tension 
you might be feeling between this, the truth that we're saved by grace, and yet we can receive reward. I feel a little bit of a tension at times when I think about that. So let me walk through my journey with this. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor to pretty good people, right? Not pretty bad people, right? It's unmerited favor to ill-deserving sinners, right? At the cost of the cross, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how could that, we receive that by grace, right? How could grace possibly be connected to earning and rewards? How can it be connected? And I think one of the connections is this, faith. Faith that takes God at his word. Faith. Listen, anyone here ever seen Jesus Christ in the flesh? Anybody here? Because we want to talk to you afterwards if you make that assertion. Anybody here, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, did you get a certificate FedExed overnight express from heaven saying you are now a child of God? Did you get that? Because I want to talk to you as well. Now, no doubt, when you trusted Christ, you received the Holy Spirit, right? And you began to walk in newness of life, right? But all of that was by faith. You, you had to believe someone you cannot see to give you something you have not yet fully received, right? That's why the scripture says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And in Hebrews it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11 and 6. And that is the connection between receiving the reward. Yes, I said there are right now temporal, temporary ways that God rewards us. And, and, and I listed off a few. But what did I say I think is the ultimate reward? Where, where is that ultimate reward going to be received and experienced? Where? In heaven, in glory, in the new heavens, the new earth. See, the reality is our life is but a vapor, right? Bam. It, listen, we're living in a dot and the line that goes on forever after that. But we're in a dot. And this dot seems so big, but all it is is a dot. That's all it is. In other words, we are pilgrims who we are looking for another city, a city made without hands, right? A city whose king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this king sees everything right now perfectly. And he's a good, good king. And he wants to lavishly award and reward us even more out of his grace. That's the heart of our king. Did not, listen, we'll see in a few chapters, he will say, what father is there among you who if his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? I actually might do that just as a joke and then I'll give him some bread, okay? God's not like that. He has a sense of humor, I'm sure. But the point is, if you being evil fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more your heavenly father so I don't exactly know what this is going to be, but I just believe that when we pray and fast and give and evangelize and repent and seek to bear good fruit and good works, 
with a right view to the right motivation of God's sight and God's rewards, that we are then living by faith. Wish I could say it like an Irishman, faith. We're living by faith. We're living by faith, and that glorifies God. Because he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I think the connection is faith. I'm willing not to receive reward right now because I know there is a weight of glory to come. The world will spit at that, right? That's so foolish. That's so stupid. What a waste. The question is, who are you going to believe, right? Now, I am going to land this plane a little long today. I, I do want to leave a final word to those who might be tempted to overanalyze. Because I can think of a few of you, just by walking with you, you are gonna, you're just going to be taking your pulse every time you pray. Oh, why am I praying? Oh, why am I, you know, like, listen, there's some people like don't look inward enough. Some people, they kind of can obsessively do that. And maybe, maybe yes, there is a part, small part of you that wants to be seen, right? Maybe there is a small part of you that when someone gave you a compliment, and we should compliment and encourage each other, you feast on it a little bit too much. I just want to say, whoever you are, don't abuse yourself by the um, over-analysis of paralysis, by the paralysis of over-analysis, okay? Hey, listen, if the Spirit highlights that you are doing something for the wrong reason, just repent, right? Repent. Yeah, do that. But the intent of this passage, I think, is not to cause us to suffer the paralysis of analysis, but to set our eyes on the king who is above and the kingdom that is to come, where he is going to reward his people out of his grace so lavishly and is going to blow us away forever. Jesus is not trying to condemn us here, sister and brother in Christ, because most of the time, let's be honest, our best motives are a bit mixed, right? And doesn't that thrust us all right back to where it began in the first place? The blood-bought mercy of Jesus Christ. He forgives us, and he takes our service and our worship, our prayers, our fasting, our giving, our evangelizing, all of that, as tainted as it might be, when we come in his name, he makes it acceptable to God. That's what he does as a high priest. Scripture's clear that Jesus, Hebrews 7, and the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, takes our prayers and makes them acceptable to the Father. So I don't think it's an unwarranted leap to you to say he doesn't just do that with our prayer, but with our other practicing of righteousness, our other spiritual disciplines. Praise Jesus for his mercy, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. Music team, would you come? Let's sing. Let's sing to this king. Let's sing to this king. How can we do any less than sing to this king, right? <laughs>